Ezekiel chapter 3, I'm going to read two verses 12 through 27. That's the section we're going to cover for tonight. We won't finish all the way through verse 27, but we'll hopefully get at least three quarters of the way through. Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 12 through 27. It says, Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another. And the sound of the wheels beside them, and the sound of a great earthquake. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. And I came to the exiles at Tel Abib, who were dwelling by the Kebar Canal, and I sat where they were dwelling, and I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. And the, at the end of the seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul." Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul." And the hand of the Lord was upon me there, and he said to me, Arise, go out into the valley, and there I will speak with you. So I arose and went out into the valley, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory that I had seen by the Kebar Canal, and I fell on my face. But the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and he spoke with me and said to me, Go, shut yourself within your house, and you, O son of man, behold, cords will be placed upon you, and you shall be bound with them, so that you cannot go out among the people." And I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth, so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who will hear, let him hear, and he, will, he, he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. <clears throat> now, like I said, we're not going to be able to cover all of this tonight, but almost three quarters, I believe, we'll be able to get through it. So let's go back to chapter 3, verse 12, and let's start breaking it down, or as my pastor at First Merritt Allen likes to say, let's unpack it. All right, Ezekiel chapter 3, look at verse 12. It says, Then the Spirit lifted me up. This being lifted up here is not the same as what we saw earlier in chapter 2, verse 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 2, and it says, And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And this, the Spirit lifting him up, is actually an actual picking up and carrying him off somewhere between heaven and earth. And I guess the best way I can explain this to you is to show you two other examples here from Ezekiel. All right, the one in chapter 2 is when he was laying on his face. He was laying on his face and uh, the Lord stood him up on his feet. But this is actually picking him up off the earth. Go to Ezekiel chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 4. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. 
He put out a form, the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head and the spirit lifted me up between heaven, earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north where was the seat of the image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the valley. So here we see that he saw a vision of, of God and grabs him and picks him up by the head of hair and hauls him over to Jerusalem. Go to Ezekiel chapter 11. Just look at verse 1. Now the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. So we see that here's the tricky part. Some of these are just visions where he's picked up and carried and he's shown things. Other times he's actually moved. I believe this situation in Ezekiel 3, he's actually moved to that spot because he's going to stay there and he's going to preach to the people that are there eventually. But the wrestling part with many people and theologians as well, and even the people that this happened to is, did this happen physically or was it just a vision? And I don't know if you know it or not, but sometimes even the people that had the experience happen to them here in the scriptures, they don't even know. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let me show you what Paul had to say about this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, look at verses 1 through 4. Paul says in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 1, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. As Paul was describing this experience that he had where God took him into the third heaven, into paradise and showed him stuff, he writes and he says, I, whether it was actually physically happening to me or whether or not I was just in the spirit and I was out of my body, I don't know. And he says it again, whether it was an actual, I know I had a body and it probably was real, but I'm not sure if it was me. It could have just been a vision where I just, I don't know. And in a lot of these experiences that happened to Ezekiel, you'll see the same type of a thing where God picks him up and carries him off in a vision. But it appears here in Ezekiel 3 that in this instance, because go back to chapter 3, look at verse 12 again. It says, Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them, and the sound of a great earthquake. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. And I came to the exiles at Tel Abib, who were dwelling by the Kebar Canal, and I sat where they were dwelling, and I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. So it appears that in this instance, he was physically moved to another place. Now, at the same time, keep this in mind. Do we have any biblical example of God ever physically moving someone from one place to another? Philip. Very good. Remember, as he was led of the Spirit to go over to the Ethiopian eunuch and shares with him from the prophet Isaiah. And the eunuch comes to faith, said, here's water. What keeps me from being baptized? As they go down into the water, as they came up out of the water, God moved him. And he, he ended up in Azadus. So in this instance, in chapter 3, I think God physically picks him up and carries him to where he wants him to be. Now, it says that he goes in bitterness, in the heat of his spirit. Not just... We touched on this earlier. I just want to remind you. Remember, he's already just been given the scroll to eat. And what was written on the scroll? 
words of woe and lamentation and mourning. In other words, the message that he had for the people wasn't a happy message. Now, I'll be honest with you, folks. I get excited about preaching and teaching the Word of God. I'm always early. I can't wait. I get an opportunity to teach and preach the Word of God. I can't wait to get there. But there have been times that even though I'm excited about sharing what God's told me to share, there are times, though, that God has sent me to places around this country, and the message He's told me to share to a church is not a good message. And i got to be honest with you. My stomach hurts when I go do that. I mean, I wish I could tell you that all my messages are encouragement. Some of the messages God in my 10 plus years now of traveling around as a messenger, if you will, to the churches in America. Some of the messages that God has told me to go to a state at certain places are not good. I'll be honest with you, two pastors have been fired for bringing me in. That should give you an idea of some of the messages that God has told me to preach in places. On those times, I don't feel excited about preaching what I'm about to preach because I know they're not going to like it. But i got to be faithful to say what God's told me to say. Now, trust me, I beg a lot of times, can I just preach something easier than that? And he'll say, no, you say what I tell you to say, kind of what we're going to talk about tonight. Now, at the end of the time under the Spirit's control, Ezekiel ends up by the exiles who are mourning for Jerusalem by the Kebar Canal. And I'm going to say something to you here. I've already said one thing. I'm going to say another thing that I'm going to back up from Scripture. When he comes to these people who are there by the Kebar Canal, the exiles who are there, it's a mixture of not only the exiles from Judah, but also some of the exiles who had been taken captive from the northern kingdom in Assyria. Because remember, when the Assyrians came and captured the northern kingdom and carried them off to Assyria, that's the same area that became Babylon when the Babylonians took over from the Assyrians. It's the same area. And I'm going to show you from Scripture that he actually is brought by God to go speak to the, Assyria, the, the ones who have been taken captive during Assyria's time from the northern kingdom and to the ones who have been taken captive so far in God's uh, using Babylon to take them captive. And they're mourning there. He said, well, where did you get all that from Scripture? So let's go take a look at uh, 2 Kings chapter 17. So I want to show you from Scripture that it's a mixture of Judeans, if you will, from the tribe of Judah, and Israelites from the northern, northern tribe who are there at the Kebar Canal. 2 Kings chapter 17. And I'm also going to show you in just a little bit that they were mourning there. In 2 Kings chapter 17, it says in verse 1, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, the king of Judah... Hoshea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to sow the king of Egypt and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria, and he placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, in the cities of the Medes. By the way, if you do a little study, you'll find this Habor river is the same thing, the same place as the Kebar Canal. 
So the Assyrians came and took the northern kingdom and carried them away to what we know of in Ezekiel's day as Babylon. It was Assyria at the time of their captivity. And he placed them on the Habor River, which is also the Kebar Canal. Ezekiel now, as you remember from our prior study, has been taken captive from Judah as a part of the captivity of the people that were taken of the 10,000 that were taken during Nebuchadnezzar's time of attacking in 597 BC. And he's brought there and God takes him in the spirit and then physically as well to this place of the Kebar Canal where there are northern kingdom exiles and southern kingdom exiles. But I also want you to see from the passage that we're going to passages we're going to look at from our passage and from a couple other that they were mourning. They weren't just sitting there They were sitting there mourning. Go to Psalm 137. And look at verses 1 through 3. Psalm 137, verse 1. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. You see what they're saying? They said, When we were captive in Babylon, we were there by the waters in Babylon, which we know now as the Kebar Canal or the Habor River. And what did we do? We hung up our musical instruments. And we mourned for Jerusalem. Oh, and our captors made fun of us. And they said, hey, you know, you've been pretty famous for your songs about Zion and Jerusalem. Why don't you sing us one of those songs? And they said we couldn't do it. We were in grief and mourning. Go to Job. You're in Psalm. Back up one book to the book of Job. Go to Job chapter 2. Look at verses 11, and 13, 11 through 13. It says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't even recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads and toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. What they would do when they were having times of mourning, when they were going to show serious mourning with you, is they would sit with you and do nothing, say nothing for seven days. And these guys had made a plan. They'd all contacted each other. We heard our buddy Job's had it rough. Let's go comfort him. And as they showed up at the time that they'd all agreed to go comfort him, they didn't even recognize him. When they saw how bad it was, even worse than they had thought, they start to weep and mourn with him. And when they show up, they don't say anything for seven days and seven nights, which is the way of showing I'm with you in this. Now, of course, we know the rest of the story. After seven days, they start speaking, and they probably shouldn't have. Well, no, probably shouldn't have. The Bible says they shouldn't have. And they said a lot of things that weren't true. But at the same time, go back to Ezekiel chapter 3. And look at verse 15. And I came to the exiles at Tel Abib, who were dwelling by the Kebar Canal. And I sat where they were dwelling, and I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. You see, when putting the scripture together, you realize these exiles are at the Kebar Canal and they're weeping because of Jerusalem and because of what's happened. Ezekiel shows up and he sits with them. Well, he sits with them in mournful silence to commiserate with them for seven days and hopefully to earn the ability to speak to them. 
So that's why he's been brought there by God. To show him, I'm with you. I'm one of the exiles. I mourn for Jerusalem like you do. I hope you understand that I'm with you in this. But as you're about to see, the message that he's about to bring them is not one of encouragement. It's not one of, hey guys, hang on. We're going to be okay. We'll be going back to Jerusalem soon. The message that God has for him. Well, when God carried him there, how did he feel the whole time he was being carried by God there to bring this message? We read it earlier. I went in bitterness and the heat of my spirit because he knew the message I have to bring to you guys is not good. Is not good. Now, these next verses, which we're going to spend most of the rest of our time tonight dealing with, the next section of scripture in which God tells Ezekiel that he has made him a watchman and that if he doesn't warn them, he'll hold him accountable for their blood. I'm going to tell you, it's been a tough passage for many over the years. Now, you've heard me say this before, and I'm going to repeat it again. I believe the Bible teaches without question that when a preacher tells you, if you don't tell them, they may never hear, that doesn't match up with the Holy Scripture. You could build that doctrine from this passage. But this is why this passage has been a bellyache for me. Because when you use the whole of Scripture, it's obvious that this can't be what this is saying. If you don't tell them, they may never hear, but I'll judge them anyway because of their sin, but I'll hold you accountable. We'll deal with all that in just a little bit tonight. But for years, I have taught you, and I'll repeat it again, that I believe the Bible teaches without question that everybody hears. There's no such person who will be standing before his Creator and say, I never, ever knew. I don't believe there's any such thing. Because the scripture says, first of all, in Romans chapter 1, that has revealed his divine nature and his eternal qualities have been clearly seen through what has been made so that everyone is without excuse. They already know God exists. Then chapter 2 of Romans, Paul goes on and says, even if they never heard God's law, he's written his law in their hearts, their consciences convicting them and showing them that they're lawbreakers. And he says that God will judge all men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. We have talked earlier about the fact that Colossians chapter 1, verse 23 says, Paul describes the gospel this way, this gospel which has been preached in all creation. In Romans chapter 10, in that famous passage where they talk about how can they hear unless someone preaches to them, later on, just a few verses later, Paul says, did they not hear? Of course they did. His word has gone out into all the earth. The scripture is very clear that everyone hears. So, Whenever I've taught that, I've always had this passage in the back of my mind because it's been a bother for me. Because it sure looks like, well, if you, I tell you to tell them and you don't tell them, they're going to be judged because of their sin. But now I'm going to hold you accountable for their blood. Now, we also know that the Bible is very clear that you can't lose your salvation if you have it. So if God's going to hold me accountable for somebody else's blood, but I can't lose my salvation. What does it mean then for him to hold me accountable for someone's blood? And I will look you in the eye and say, even though I've been a Christian for over 40 years, been preaching for over 30 years, this is a passage I've never really fully understood. But it now makes sense because as I started to say, all right, Lord, now you, this is one of the benefits of teaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse. You can't skip the passages you don't like. It makes you have to deal with it. And so I locked myself away in my study and said, all right, Lord, I need some help here. And not only did God begin to open my eyes to this, he showed me a whole lot that we're going to spend our time dealing with. So as always, let's use all of Scripture to give us a correct interpretation of Scripture. 
It's going to be helpful for us to note that while Isaiah and Jeremiah were sent as watchmen to warn Israel and Judah of the coming judgment of God before the judgment took place, the nation didn't listen to them. Isaiah and Jeremiah, they're contemporaries of Ezekiel, but their ministry started prior to the judgments coming. They went to the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah uh, and saying to the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel saying, because of your sin, God's going to bring judgment. There's going to be captivity. Go to Jeremiah chapter 6. Look at verse 17. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 17, the scripture says, God speaking, I set watchmen over you, saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. All right. And by the way, I just had a thought. The Bible says when the church is raptured, there's going to be a trumpet. And how many people are going to miss out when they were told that there's a rapture coming? Pay attention to the sound of the trumpet but they wouldn't listen. But God sent is, uh, sorry, Isaiah and Jeremiah prior to the judgments, and Jeremiah continued to preach through the judgments. Isaiah was actually put to death by King Manasseh because of his preaching before the judgments came. But Ezekiel's different. Ezekiel hadn't been sent as a messenger to them prior to the judgments, Actually, Ezekiel starts his prophecy ministry as one of the exiles. He's in the midst of the judgment. Remember, he's been already taken captive. And then once he turns 30, five months and four days old, God begins to use him as a prophet now to the people. And if you look closely, go, go to me to verse uh, 18 of chapter 3 of Ezekiel. And look at the singular term, the singular tense in this, these verses. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him, singular, no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his, singular, blood I will require at your hand. So what I want you to see is that I start to first off notice as I begin to wrestle with this that Jeremiah and Isaiah were to preach to the whole nation. But Ezekiel's message is now happening while the exiles are, hap are, are is happening or the, the judgment is happening to the nation and is still more to come for Jerusalem. Assyria has already taken the northern kingdom captive. And Ezekiel's ministry is actually more now to the individual who will listen in the last part of the judgment. And I can be honest with you folks, I think the scriptures teach the same thing as we look at the church age. There's a preaching that goes out. But as you look at Revelation chapter 2 and 3, it's almost like to the individual who will listen even at that time. If you were to ask me, I think according to Scripture, it's too late for the United States. But does that not mean that there are still individuals that God would like to rescue that we'd like us to warn them to escape the judgment that's coming. Ezekiel was sent to preach, yes, to the nation of Israel per se, but really more to the individual who would listen at that time. Now, it'll also be helpful for us to see that when God speaks of life and death here, he's speaking of physical judgment. Listen closely. He's speaking of physical judgment because of sin 
and not eternal damnation, although that may follow for some. You see, for years, I've read living as being saved and dying as going to hell in this passage. And one of the things that opened up for me here, and I'll show you why, is that I started to realize that the passage is not talking about the ones who live as the ones who are going to heaven and the ones who die as going to hell, but actually it's talking about those who will get to live because they're willing to say, I don't want to be put to death by God for my sin, and they get to physically live longer on the earth, and those who will be put to death physically because of their rejecting the offer of not being put to death. In other words, go to Joshua chapter 1. Let me kind of lay this out for you. Go to Joshua chapter 1 and look at verses 16 through 18. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 16, the mantle of leadership has been handed over from Moses to Joshua. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him, shall be put to death. But only be strong and courageous. Go to Exodus chapter 22. As you're turning to Exodus chapter 22, and we're going to look at verses 18 through 20. Hopefully you know, and if not, let me tell you, that certain sins, the consequences for those certain sins in the law of Moses was immediate death. Correct? Now, some of them weren't that way, but certain ones were. Capital punishment was instituted by God. If a man sheds a life, what was the consequence? He was to be put to death. Look at Exodus chapter 22, verses 18 through 20. It says, You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. God said, there are certain things, and by the way, there's more. You just get an idea from it here. There are certain things that my dealing with it is immediately putting them to death because of their sin. Well, why does God do that, by the way? Does anybody have any idea why God had the certain sins, the immediate reaction was they're put to death? It definitely keeps corruption down. Go ahead. The impact of the sin on the camp. The impact of the sin on the camp. And as, as you know, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And it also shows the seriousness of sin to the whole nation or to the church. Do you remember back when God was beginning? As, remember, Josh was leading them into the land. As they go to attack Jericho, he said, here's what I want you to understand. This first city that I'm going to have you destroy, everything is devoted to the Lord. You can't keep any of the plunder for yourself. Well, remember, there's this guy Achan who takes some of the gold and hides it in his tent. And then they go to defeat the next little town in Ai, and they lose to this little town. And they're like, what's, what's going on? And God said, well, there's some people that didn't listen to me. And they went through the whole process where God revealed who it was. And what did God have done to Achan and his whole family? They were all put to death right then. Now, have there been other people throughout the history of Israel who had disobeyed God's commands? Did he put them to death right away? No. But at the beginning, he does it to show the seriousness of sin. In the beginning of the church, there's this couple in Acts chapter 5 named Ananias and Sapphira. And folks, the Bible's pretty clear. They were believers. 
They had the Spirit of God within them. And the Bible's very clear that if you have received the Spirit, you're eternally secure. He will never leave you nor forsake you. But the Bible also teaches that as a believer, if you walk in continual disobedience, He will bring physical judgment because of sin. We'll talk about that at the end at the very close of our, of our lesson tonight. But Ananias and Sapphira gave some money to the church because um, um, I forget Barnabas had just done that, given, sold a piece of property, gave the amount to the church. And I guess he got some recognition or something. So Ananias and Sapphira said, let's, let's do that too. But they kept some of the money and pretended like they gave it all to the church. What did God do to both of them? He put them to death. They didn't lose their salvation, but there was physical consequences for their sin. You see, earlier in this passage we saw in Ezekiel, if a righteous person and I put a stumbling block in front of them sins, and you warn them and they don't listen, they'll die because of their sin, but you'll be spared. But if you don't warn them, they'll still die because of their sin, but now their blood's going to be in your head. We'll deal with the blood on your head in just a little bit. But do you understand? How in the world is anyone righteous? Only by God. But would he put to death a righteous person? Yes. Sometimes there are physical consequences for sin. And I believe this passage here in Exodus, and go with me to Exodus chapter 18, you'll see it get even more clear. Sorry, not Exodus, Ezekiel. This passage in Ezekiel 3 that says, if you warn them, they live. If, they, if you don't warn them, they die. He's just simply saying, look, what did he tell the nation of Israel? If you obey my commands, you'll live long in the land and you'll prosper. If you disobey my commands... I'm going to bring consequences, and I'm going to kill you and take you out of the land. Now, we saw in Exodus chapter 22, verse 18 through 20, verse 20 specifically, that God had said, if anyone worships another god, they are to be what? Utterly destroyed. Oh, by the way, what's been happening to this point now in the nation of Israel over its history? People have been worshiping false gods left and right. The kings have been doing it. You're going to see that they're actually doing it in the temple. And they haven't been following God's command to put these people to death. And so God pretty much says, tell you what, I'm going to take the consequences for this type of sin into my own hands. And I'm going to bring physical consequences for his disobedience. Oh, Ezekiel, I've made you a watchman. I sent watchmen to them prior to this. Their names are Isaiah and Jeremiah and others. And they wouldn't listen to them. I'm now telling you that the people I tell you to go speak to, if you don't warn them, they're going to die because of their sin because that's the consequence that's coming. But now I'm going to hold you accountable for their blood. What does that mean, Jim? A little bit later. Go to Exodus, Ezekiel chapter 18. I want to kind of lay this out a little bit more here. Ezekiel chapter 18. I'm going to read to you the whole chapter. Because you've been good. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Here's the proverb. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. If a man is righteous 
and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel and does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, or commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends it interest and takes profit, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. Now, by the way, this is the grandson now. And he sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withhold his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother and did what was not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, what sh why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father when the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes? He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. Righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and no, nor rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from righteous, his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed for them he shall die. Yet you say the wicked of the, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are not my ways just? Are, sorry, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. This living and dying is simply God saying, if you disobey me, I'm going to put you to death because of your sin. But I'm a God who doesn't want to put you to death because of your sin. So I want you to obey me and live. So 
Well, go to chapter 33, Ezekiel 33, verses 1 through 9. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone here who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes away one sorry, any one of them away, that person is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I'll require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul." So again, we see over and over this illustration of if you warn them and they listen, good, They'll, you'll both live. But if you don't warn them and they don't listen because you didn't warn them, not only will they die because of their sin, because that's why I was bringing the judgment, I'm going to hold you accountable for their blood. But if you warn them and they don't listen, he'll die for his own sin, but you'll be spared. What does it mean then when he says, I'm going to hold you accountable for their blood? Does that mean that if you're supposed to warn somebody and you don't, now that you won't get to go to heaven? Is that what the Bible teaches? No, it has to be something else. Well, actually, here's what it is. Back in the day, like I told you, if you were guilty of a sin worthy of death, you were guilty. Well, let's put it this way. Let's say in the Old Testament, if I killed Mark. His blood is now on me, right? I am now worthy of being put to death myself, correct? Now, the good news is, if you look in the Bible, the Old Testament, if you killed people, there was the mercy seat, the horns of the altar. You could run to the cities of refuge and seek mercy of God to be spared from being put to death. What he's saying is this. God says, if I've given you someone that I want you to go talk to and warn them, and you don't do it, And they die because of their sin. They're going to die because of their sin. But I'm going to look at you as one who shed blood. Because now you are partly responsible. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. It means that you now have a target on your back. What should be our response if we're one of these people? See God's mercy and his forgiveness. If a righteous person... And I put a trap in front of them or a stumbling block and they fail the test and sin. I'm going to put them to death because of that. Now, again, as we're going to talk to you at the end, that doesn't mean that you lose your salvation. That's the neat thing about living in this time period that we're in here where we're sealed by the spirit of God. What is coming to the nation of Israel in time to come? The nation of Israel in the past, remember, they were given righteousness, but God would put his spirit upon them. But if they walked in disobedience, he would remove his spirit, wouldn't he? Isn't that why David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, said, don't take your Holy Spirit from me? Remember what happened to Saul? 
what a miserable condition he ended up in. We're in a wonderful time period called the Age of Grace in which God saves us, seals us with his spirit. But at the same time, there is still consequence for disobedience when it comes to whom God wants to use us in their lives. But don't go running out of here scared. I do have some encouragement for you along this line. This is pretty serious stuff, though. Wouldn't you agree? This is pretty serious stuff. Paul had these verses in mind when he said what he said in Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 20. Go to Acts chapter 18, go to Acts chapter 20. And hopefully we'll start to pull this all together here now. Go to Acts chapter 18, look at verses, verse 6, and then Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 27. Acts chapter 18, look at verse 6. He's been preaching in the synagogues and the Jews have been rejecting his messages. And in verse 6, when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. In other words, I'm not responsible for your blood. Why? I told you. You didn't listen. Your blood's on your own head. I'm not responsible for your blood. I told you. Go to chapter 20. Look at verses 22 through 27. Chapter 20, verse 22. Paul saying, speaking to the believers there, he says, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He said... I just want you to understand that I may never see you again. And I can look you all in the eye and tell you I'm innocent of all your blood because I've told you everything that God told me to tell you. Now, again, this is where Satan wants to come in and say, well, what if you didn't tell everybody you're supposed to tell? And this is where, unfortunately, we've heard the wrong kind of preaching that I want to clarify a little bit. Have we not heard the preachers say that we're supposed to go out into all the world and tell everybody? I mean, doesn't it say in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Behold, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Didn't Jesus send us to go out into all the world and get the gospel to everyone? And folks, how are we doing? We're not doing good. We've got we to gotta get it out. Listen closely. All throughout all of this, there has been something that Paul even said and all Ezekiel said, and God has said all along. The context is you speaking to the ones that God told you to speak to. And I want to show you from Scripture that even though he said to go into all the world, he never expected all of us to tell everybody. Let me show you what I mean. You remember how he said go into all the world? In Acts chapter 16, Paul tries he tries to go into Asia. But what, has happened? what does the Spirit say? The Spirit said, you're not to go to Asia. He then tries to go into Mysia, but the Spirit wouldn't let him. Later on, he has the dream of the man of Macedonia, and they said, then we realized that God was wanting us to go there. 
So we see clearly that Paul tried to go everywhere, and Jesus said, no, listen closely, you go where I've called you to go. We see in Galatians chapter 2, we don't have time to turn there, but in Galatians 2, they came to the realization that Paul had been sent to the Gentiles, Peter had been sent to the Jews. But go to Matthew chapter 10, let me show you something very interesting. Matthew chapter 10. Look at verses 5 and 6. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So when he sent his disciples out two by two, he told them. See, we always read the, 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 the gospel account that says, And wherever you go. Let your peace go out. If it's received, stay, and if it's not, move on. But Matthew's gospel gives us a little more information. They weren't to go wherever. He said, you can't go to the Gentiles. You're not even go to the Samaritans, only to the lost sheep of Israel. How come God told his disciples, you're not allowed to go to these houses. You're only allowed to go to these houses. How come? That's right. It was Jew first, and eventually to be the Gentile. These same people that he said, you can't go to the Gentiles, nor to the Samaritans. Later on, after they received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit comes to indwell them, and Peter starts to preach under the fullness of the Spirit, and they all who were gathered heard them in their languages, which were Gentile languages. Later on, as you know, Peter has the dream or the vision of the sheep coming down with all the animals that were unclean, and God says, arise, kill and eat. Peter says, "Uh uh-uh. Uh-huh, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God says, what I've called clean, don't you call unclean. And that's when the knock on the door came from the Gentile, Cornelius' servants, as they were sent to him. And he knew that God was allowing him to go to the Gentiles. But then later on, it became clear, as they were understanding God's plan for each of their lives, that Peter was to go to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles. Go to Mark chapter 5. This is one of my favorite, favorite passages of Scripture. Mark chapter 5. Look at verses 18 through 20. Because something interesting happens here. There's a man that has a legion of demons within him. And, and, and it's, he's so out of control that they actually chain him up out in these grave areas. And Jesus gets in a boat to go meet this man and to, and to heal him. And in Mark chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Isn't that interesting? This guy says, I'm ready to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, actually, I want you to go home. And you tell the people at home what I've done. But didn't he tell Peter and James and John to leave their families? And come follow me. Folks, this is the danger of listening to preachers who take one passage of Scripture and then try to make it fit everybody. Because you could have a preacher say, look at how he told them, drop your nets, leave mom and dad, follow me. And that's true. But is that what he wants us all to do? No. Here we see he told this one, you go home. See, part of our problem is we get this panicked feeling of, well, I need to get the word out, and what if I'm not getting the word out good enough? Back up. All along, God says, if there's an individual I tell you to go speak to, and they don't listen, their blood's on their own head. But if you don't speak to the one I tell you to speak to, then their blood's on your head. Now you say, but Jim, wait a minute. 
What if, what if I've missed it? What if I don't know? Let me back you up again. The Spirit of God live within you? Is He pretty good at getting His message to you? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He what? He will direct your path. Does He know He's dealing with people that are a little bit hard-headed? Does he know he's dealing with people that have a hard time hearing him and understanding? Of course he knows all that. He made you. He knows you. And he knows how best to communicate you. Folks, what we're talking about here is not a fear of maybe I didn't get to tell the person I was supposed to, but the difference between knowing he's told you and you saying no. You know, there's a big difference. But on top of that, Go to Ezekiel again to chapter 3. Look at verses 26 and 27. I had us read into a section we weren't going to get to tonight for a reason. And in Ezekiel chapter 3, look at verses 26 and 27. The same Ezekiel that God has told him, if I tell you to warn somebody and you don't warn them, their blood's on your head. Look at verse 26. And God says, I'm going to make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them. Reprove them. Well, hang on for a second. God, you just said, if I don't tell them, their blood's on my head, and now you're telling me you're going to make my mouth so that I can't tell them. Hello? Keep reading. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. Do you see the difference? It's not just going out and telling everybody you think you're supposed to tell. No, you go where God's called you. But you also only speak when God releases you to speak. You mamas, God's told you to go home and to be used there in your home. Your grandmamas, he's given you people that he wants you to speak to. But listen, you only speak to whom he tells you to speak to and you only speak when He releases you to speak. We should not set out and try to go do things for God and go do all this stuff for God. We should be walking with him, knowing that he's going to use each of us. And again, like I showed you, for a while he told Peter and James and John, you can't go to the Gentiles. But then later on, he has Peter go into a Gentile's house. But then he sends him back to the Jews. Paul has a heart for the Jews, and he preaches to the Jews for a season. And then he sends them to the Gentiles. But then... When he goes at the end of his life, he goes back to Rome and he sends a whole bunch of Jews all to hear him preach. We need to just walk with the Lord and rest in the fact that he's going to use us and he's going to speak through us. But let me also point something else that many people have missed throughout all of this. He said, I set you as a watchman. What was the watchman's role? They were to what? They were to watch for the enemy and they were to warn The people that they were, did the watchmen go out yelling, trouble, trouble, trouble? No, the watchmen were set in a place, and they were to warn all the people that they had been set in that place. This watchman's not supposed to be yelling for the people over there. There's a watchman over there. And you need to just understand that God will lead you, and he'll direct you, and he'll guide you. I wish I could tell you, but since they're being recorded, I got some cool stories that I could tell. But for the sake of privacy, I've had the opportunity just recently to see God do some things in lives of people that he's put me in their life years ago. Years ago. And just last night, I got word 
than an individual that I have been speaking to for years turned from their sin and the judgment that was coming on them. And they've come to the Lord. I've just been praising God because I've been praying for this individual and God has put me in this individual's path. They don't even live around here. He's put me in their path off and on throughout the years, over and over. I keep running into this individual. And just last night I get a phone call that this person has listened to the sound of the trumpet and they've repented and turned from the lifestyle that they were living and they've spared and spared the judgment that is coming. Let me just go down a road real quick that I have to go down along this line. I want you with an understanding of what we've just been talking about, that we're only accountable for those that God has told us to speak to. You understand that, right? For this reason, ease up on your pastors. Because those of us who preach and teach have been given larger numbers of people that were accountable for their blood. The last thing they need is you adding to their troubles. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. Let me show you what I mean. As you're turning there, you've heard me say before, James chapter 3 verse 1 says, no, not all of you should seek to be preachers and teachers because those of us who preach will be held in higher accountability. But look at Hebrews chapter 13. Look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Having been a pastor for over 20 years, let me just tell you that one of the burdens of being a pastor is the fact that everybody's got an opinion on how they think you ought to be living your life and how you ought to be doing the ministry that God called you to God called you to this ministry, but the church writes their job description. The Bible actually says that they're going to stand before God one day and they'll be held to higher accountability. Why? Because the role he gave them was to speak to more people. And folks, let me just tell you, the Lord is able to make them stand. Romans chapter, four verse, chapter 14 verse 4 says, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and the Lord is able to make him stand. Pray for your pastors, and realize that if you've got a little bit of tinge of, I hope I'm being faithful to speak to the people God told me to speak to, multiply that times hundreds or thousands. The last thing you need to do is be one of these pain in the rear ends to your pastor because you don't think he's doing what he ought to be doing. You know what? The Lord's able to take care of that. And you just take it easy on your pastor because he's been given a lot more souls to be responsible for. And lastly... There is still, just like in this day, there are still physical consequences for persistent sin. In the church in Corinth, there were people that were sick and there were people that were dead because they had been, according to 1 Corinthians 11, taking the Lord's Supper incorrectly. Actually, what, they, what it means is this. It wasn't that like we've been taught that they didn't seriously consider the body and the blood or whether or not they've been good enough. The issue was this. In that whole context, Paul was saying, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat because the Lord's Supper was designed to be a fellowship meal and you're not even waiting for each other. You're not even treating each other very good. And he said, there's divisions among you. And he says, when you eat 
the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. You're guilty of sinning against the body and the blood because you haven't discerned the body. Listen closely to what he says. He said, you're guilty of sinning against the body and the blood because you haven't discerned the body. He doesn't say the body and the blood. He says just the body. Why? Because the body is the body of Christ. He said that the reason why some of you are sick and some have died is because you have no trouble coming to the Lord's table and eating of a meal that was, well, as the Lord shared with me, Paul said, on the night that he was betrayed, he said, this is my body broken for you. And that you is in the plural. If he was in southern Jerusalem, he would have said, this is my body broken for y'all. And because there were believers in that church who hated each other and didn't treat each other well, were fighting with each other, and that's all Paul deals with in the whole book of Corinthians is the divisions, when they were taking the Lord's Supper and pretending like, hey, we're all together, the Lord said, I've been bringing physical consequences for this persistent sin. Some of you are sick, and some have died. Go to 1 John chapter 5. Look at verses 16 and 17. 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. He says, If anyone sees a brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Do you see what he's saying here? Just like we talked about earlier in the Old Testament, there were sins, certain sins that the consequences were physical death, and there were other sins that the consequences weren't physical death. They had to be unclean for so many days and all these different things. But there were certain sins that they're so serious, God said, I want them, these people to be put to death right away because I want you to see the seriousness of sin. I don't want, like you shared, this sin infecting the whole batch because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And all along, there are certain things that don't make us lose our salvation but when we walk in persistent sin, God says, judgment coming. And folks, let me just ask you a simple question as we close tonight. Even though God had said, if you do this sin, you're to be put to death. Why did he put up with it for so many years? And on top of that, even with the prophets warning them and telling them, if you keep going down this road, there's going to be a judgment because of your sin, and God's going to put you to death because of it. And then when the Assyrians did come, they, he didn't take them all out at once. And we even see at the very end when he finally used the Assyrians to take the northern kingdom out, he besieged them for three years. And then we see as we've been seeing our study of the Babylonian attack and the judgment because of the, through the Babylonians, it started in 605 and then it continued again in 597 and didn't happen fully until 586. Why does God not just do it all at once? Because he's merciful. He's not willing anyone to perish we read in Ezekiel 33, does he take any joy in putting people to death? No. So I don't know, and it's not for any of us to know whether or not God's going to kill you for some of the stuff you're doing. But I'm going to look you in the eye and tell you this. There is sin that leads to death. Not all sin leads to death. I think it'd be good for all of us to realize, let's just obey God. Oh, and by the way, if you disagree with me, your blood's on your own head. We'll see you next week.